November of 1999 to June of 2000, the city of Miami, the state of Florida, and most of the United States were divided over the fate of one six-year-old boy. His name was Elian Gonzalez. Gonzalez was born in Cardenas, Cuba in 1993, and by the time he was born, his parents had divorced. On November 21, 1999, Gonzalez, his mother Elizabeth, and 12 others left Cuba on a small aluminum raft seeking refuge in the United States. During the journey, the boat's engine failed and it began to fill with water. While Gonzalez and two others were able to survive long enough to be rescued by American fishermen, his mother Elizabeth and 10 others sadly drowned. Gonzalez was brought to Miami, Florida, where he lived with his great uncle and other relatives. A massive custody battle began between Gonzalez's father in Cuba and his relatives in the U.S. Many people believed that, as his father was his only living parent, Gonzalez should return to Cuba, while others believed that, under the wet-foot-dry-foot policy, Gonzalez deserved to stay in Miami. Ultimately, on April 13, 2000, U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno ordered Gonzalez to be returned to his father in Cuba. When his relatives refused to give him up, Border Patrol agents raided their home and seized Gonzalez on April 21, 2000. Today, Gonzalez is 26 and he lives in Cuba. The Elian Gonzalez case heavily strained relations between the U.S. government and the Cuban-American community. Many people even cite the case as a deciding factor in the 2000 presidential election between George Bush and Al Gore, in which Bush won the state of Florida by a mere 537 votes. of Elian Gonzalez is certainly one of the most famous of its kind, it isn't the only example of an international child custody battle. Another occurred in 1980 when a Soviet-born 12-year-old living in Chicago named Walter Polovchok refused to return to the Soviet Union when his family decided to move back. Polovchok ran away from home to live with his cousins, leading to the custody battle. The U.S. government intentionally allowed the case to continue for five years until Polovchok turned 18, allowing him to stay in the U.S. against his parents' wishes. Today, he is a U.S. citizen living in De Plain, Illinois. While these two cases were very important, I still haven't mentioned what may have been the craziest international custody battle in history. It dragged on for three years, included an international manhunt, and divided an entire nation along religious lines. I'm going to tell you all about it, right now, on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 17th episode of this podcast, and I'm glad you've stuck around for this episode. Special thank you to Patreon subscriber Sodak Zach. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and becoming a patron. 
one more thing. Make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. A boy named Yosel Schumacher was born in the village of Uman in the Soviet Union in present-day Ukraine. His parents, Alter and Ida Schumacher, raised him in a secular Jewish household, while his maternal grandparents, Nachman and Miriam Strakas, were ultra-Orthodox Haredi Jews. In 1958, Schumacher and his parents moved to Israel, where they settled on a secular kibbutz. Due to financial problems, Schumacher's parents asked his grandparents to move to Israel to look after him. While his grandparents were initially hesitant due to their disdain for Israel's secular culture, they eventually settled in Jerusalem. They became active in the city's Haredi community, where they shared their fears that their grandson Yosel would be raised secularly, or that his parents would take him back to the Soviet Union and raise him as a communist. The Schumacher family gave Yosel to his grandparents, and he began attending religious school. Two years later, once the Schumachers had sorted out their financial woes, they asked Yosel's grandparents to return him to them. Remembering their concerns about his secular upbringing, they refused. They took Yosel, who was now eight years old, and hid him in the Haredi community of Bnei Brak, Israel. After a brief custody battle, the Israel Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Schumachers, and Yosel's grandparents were ordered to return him to his family. The hunt for Yosel had begun. Yosel Schumacher's abduction created a rift in Israel between Haredi Jews and the Israeli government. Tension between these groups had been growing since before the foundation of Israel itself. See, many Haredi Jews believe that Israel should not even exist, as the Torah states that a Jewish state should not be formed until the Messiah arrives. The tension between them, which continues to this day, is not limited to just that. Many deeply religious Haredi Jews oppose the progressive culture of Israel, taking issue with the lack of gender separation in public, the recognition of LGBT rights, and the nation's policy of military conscription. When the Yosel Schumacher case hit the news, most secular Israelis, as well as the Israeli government, supported the Schumacher family and hoped to have Yosel return to them. At the same time, many Haredi Jews supported Yosel's grandparents, believing that the Israeli government's support of the Schumachers was part of a secret plan to secularize Haredi children. After refusing to obey the Israeli government's order to return Yosel to his family, Yosel's grandfather, Nachman Starkas, was arrested and sentenced to one year in prison. With the Israeli police hot on their trail, the Haredi community decided that Yosel had to be smuggled out of Israel, and they had just the person to do it, Ruth Ben David. 
born a French Catholic in 1920, Ben David, who was originally named Madeleine Ferrai, had fought in the French Revolution in World War II. She converted to Haredi Judaism in the 1950s before joining Nature Karta, a fiercely anti-Zionist Haredi Jewish group. Ben David was chosen to take Yosel out of Israel thanks to her experience in the French Revolution, as well as her vast knowledge of European languages. On June 21, 1960, Yosel was disguised as a girl, given forged identification papers, and put on a plane to Switzerland with Ruth Ben David. The search for him had become international. Switzerland, he was enrolled in a yeshiva in the city of Lucerne. Israeli police handed the case over to the Mossad, Israel's foreign intelligence agency. Due to the tight-knit nature of the Haredi communities in Europe, it was extremely difficult to pinpoint Yosel's location, as Mossad agents who were scoping out synagogues were usually quickly identified and kicked out. And keep in mind, this was around the same time that the Mossad was trying to track down prominent Nazi officials, including Josef Mengele, Gustav Wagner, and Adolf Eichmann. In the words of Mossad director Iser Harel, it was easier for Mossad agents to infiltrate Eichmann's Nazi circle in Argentina than it was to infiltrate Haredi communities. Yosel spent over two years in Europe, spending time in Lucerne, Switzerland, Brussels, Belgium, and finally Paris, France. In 1962, the Mossad received word that Yosel was living in a Haredi neighborhood of Paris. They sent 40 agents to Paris to find him, but by the time they arrived, Yosel was already on a flight to Montreal, as Ruth Ben David had handed him over to a Canadian Haredi family. Yosel briefly lived in Côte Saint-Luc, Quebec, also spending time in Beachwood, Ohio, and Teaneck, New Jersey. When the Mossad learned that Yosel had traveled to the U.S., they handed this information over to U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. Kennedy instructed the FBI to search for Yosel in the Borscht Belt, a region of downstate New York characterized by Jewish towns scattered in the Catskill Mountains. Sure enough, the FBI spent most of the summer of 1962 searching relentlessly through summer camps and resorts for Yosel. But near the end of the summer, something happened that would eventually help the Mossad find him. In August of 1962, the Mossad finally caught up to Ruth Ben David. She had been living in the outskirts of Paris, and when she decided to sell her house and move back to Israel, she was approached by a Mossad agent posing as a realtor. Ben David was arrested, and the same team used to interrogate Adolf Eichmann in 1960 was brought in to question her. Sure enough, she cracked. She told the agents that Yosel was living with a Haredi woman known only as Mrs. Gertner at 126 Penn Street in the Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York. In September of 1962, 
four FBI agents raided Mrs. Gertner's home, successfully taking Yosel into custody. He was reunited with his parents soon after. With the exception of Yosel's grandfather, none of the individuals involved in the kidnapping faced prison time, as the Israeli government feared that this would exacerbate the tensions with the Haredim. Finding Yosel was a big enough victory for them. In 1965, Ruth Ben David, aged 45, married Amram Blau, the founder of Notori Karta, aged 70. She died in Jerusalem in 2000, having never apologized for her role in the kidnapping. Today, Yosel Schumacher lives in the Israeli settlement of Sha'ad Tikva. He works for IBM, and he is married with three children. Since his conscription into the Israel Defense Forces in 1970, he has mostly tried to stay out of the public light. But in 2007, he visited New York to meet Mrs. Gertner, the woman who had housed him almost 50 years earlier. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. This topic was much more interesting than I originally expected, and I really hope you liked it. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash historiaobscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash historia obscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.